Welcome back to Freedom Fridays. In this episode of Freedom Fridays, we're going to start a new series on theological controversies, things that um, different denominations or different churches inside of denominations will have differing opinions on, but the Bible has a specific um, plan already set. So these are controversies that we can settle through Scripture, um, not just the color of the carpet or you know how you take up the offering, but things that are actually biblically mandated or biblically laid out. The first controversy that we're going to deal with wraps around baptism. And the order of these controversies is only in a, an alphabetical order, not in an order of priority. But the first controversy is baptism. So the first thing we need to learn about baptism and some of the controversies is that some churches believe that baptism is a requirement for salvation, and some do not believe that baptism is a requirement for salvation. Now, those who do believe that baptism is a requirement for salvation primarily get their reasoning from Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where Peter is saying, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This seems on the outside to suggest that they needed to repent and be baptized in order to have their sins forgiven. Is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Because we know Peter is an apostle, and he's not only an apostle, he's an apostle that was one of the closest apostles to Jesus Christ. And so his word does carry some weight. However, there is more than one way that you can interpret that passage. And when we interpret Scripture, we always compare Scripture with Scripture. We never take Scripture in an island. Uh, it's not a good practice to develop your theology based upon one scriptural island somewhere, and especially if that island is out of context with the greater um, context in scripture. So if we take a look then in, if that were the case, that baptism is required for salvation, then we should see that consistently throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, just a few chapters later, beginning in verse 36, Philip here is um, witnessing to and speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 36 as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Here Philip says the prerequisite to baptism is belief. Belief, by the way, is salvation. Verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, 
and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him and went along his way rejoicing. So now we see, we don't see, we see Philip working with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ, and Philip says, sure, you can be baptized. Absolutely. Now notice, Philip didn't ever tell the Ethiopian eunuch, you need to be baptized. He had apparently witnessed to him that he needed faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that again in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 22. This is Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken. Foundations, excuse me. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question. Paul and Silas are in this jail. You just heard the story. The Philippian jailer who thought his life was going to be ended for losing his prisoners, finds out his prisoners are there, comes in and says, what must I do to be saved? He must have been listening at some point to what Paul and Silas were talking about. And so he knew what they were saying, as any good jailer would. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. So, what did Paul say was the answer to the jailer's question, what must I do to be saved? He says, you must Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And that, that's a, true for you and your household. They, they have the same thing, you and your household. And so we see there is no prerequisite here of baptism. Paul does not talk about that at all. And then they, he washed their wounds, and immediately it says he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Not having been baptized. Remember, he was, look at the order here. He said, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. He's saved. He washes their wounds. 
and then he was baptized. Paul didn't say anything about salvation being of baptism. Baptism was just an outward showing of the what had happened inwardly. And uh, some say that baptism washes away your sins. Well, that's in direct conflict to 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Not the waters of baptism, the blood of Jesus Christ washes us from all sin. So, is baptism required for salvation? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, that's not the only theological controversy coupled with baptism. The next theological controversy with baptism is how do you baptize? Do you dunk someone? Do you sprinkle someone? Do you splash someone? Um, pour it over their head? Do you turn them upside down, backwards? You know, do you baptize if you dunk? Do you dunk forward? Do you dunk backward? What is going on with this? Well, we can settle most of the controversy with just the definition of baptize. Um, see, the Greek word translated baptize was actually never translated. Baptize or baptism never became an English word until they translated the Bible and they decided at the insistence of the Church of England and the other churches in that time frame, especially with the Church of England or the King James Version, they never translated the word. The word is actually a Greek word. Baptize is not an English word. It's a Greek word made English. So what I'm saying is the Greek word is baptizo. And they just took those Greek letters, turned them to English letters, and made it baptize. It was never translated. The word, the English, the, excuse me, the Greek word baptizo means to dip, dunk, or immerse. It's used of making pickles where you take the cucumber and you baptize it in the vinegar. It's also used of dyeing cloth where you take the cloth and you baptize it in the dye to transfer the dye into the cloth. And so both of those show you, you don't just splash it to do that. You'd never get a good pickle that way. And you'd never get a good color in your dye. It would be splattered all over. And they weren't into tie-dye back then. They were into solid colors. And so the actual word in Greek that was never translated into English means to dip or to dunk. Also, baptism is a symbol of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You don't get that symbolic nature with splashing, um, sprinkling, um, dripping water over someone. You just don't get that at all. And we see this in Romans 6, 4. Where, it's, where Paul says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Again, this is not saying that baptism saves us. Otherwise, it would say that baptism, because our baptism is into the death, not the resurrection. What it's saying is our baptism is symbolic of his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when we baptize, we dip somebody under because it shows they're, they're falling over in, in the symbolic of the death. They go under in the burial. They come up in the resurrection. Uh, by the way, that's why we de-baptize backward, not forward. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, baptism is symbolic. And if you say, well, this doesn't sound symbolic, then in the same sentence, you had better say that the circumcision in verse 11 made without hands wasn't symbolic because he's talking about symbols here. And so in the context, baptism is clearly symbolic of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We also see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Well, where was he? Down in the water. In order for him to come up out of the water, he clearly wasn't being sprinkled or drizzled upon. Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. Again, this is of the same thing. So Jesus was baptized by immersion. He was down in the water. Again, back in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, in verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the Ethiopian eunuch, and he baptized him. If he was able to just sprinkle him, they would have never had to stop at water. He could have just done it from a canteen or something. And they definitely wouldn't have had to go down into the water. They could have just splashed him from the side. Um, but that's not how baptism is performed. It's performed because it is a symbolic um, picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. is performed by dunking someone under the water. Now, the next thing, the uh, controversy about baptism is when do you be baptized? Every time in scripture, you see someone being baptized after they repent, not before and definitely not as an infant. In fact, it's a very strong argument against infant baptism. The fact that you never see one single instance anywhere in scripture there is absolutely zero evidence for baptizing infants in fact this just comes from a an error in theology that not only is baptism a salvation but somehow it's just baptism and not 
um, the repent. Those people need to go back to Acts 2.38 and see that it's not baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. It's repent and be baptized because you are forgiven of your sins. And so this infant baptism thing is, um, is a perversion of Scripture because it doesn't have anything to do with repentance. And repentance is key to the gospel. Thank you for tuning in. We'll continue this discussion on theological perversions on Freedom Fridays next time. Mm-hmm.